This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Introduction. Exodus 19, verses 4 through 8. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, an unholy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. In the fall of 1965, I took a graduate seminar on the history of the American Revolution. The instructor was Douglas Adair, a one-year visiting professor from nearby Claremont College. I had not heard of him, but when I began that seminar, I have heard about him many times ever since. That seminar was a marvelous experience in a world of infrequent marvelous experiences. The most memorable aspect of it was the day that he asked a pair of questions that have been in the back of my mind, and occasionally at the front, ever since. The first question was, who taught the tutors of the members of the Virginia dynasty? And the second question was like unto it, what books did the members of that dynasty read? He did not answer these questions in great detail, but the general answers he suggested were these. The tutors, more often than not, had been educated in some Scottish university or by a graduate of such a university, and the books they assigned to their students were the books of the Scottish Enlightenment. Whether he was right or wrong, these are the sorts of questions that historians ought to be asking. Who were the founders? There is a more fundamental question, one that I am asking here. Who were America's founding fathers, and what exactly did they found? To ask this question regarding the founders is to ask a distinctly covenantal question. A covenantal question always has five essential and inescapable parts in relation to any founding. 1. On whose authority did the founder act? 2. What kind of authority did the founder impose? 3. What were the boundaries that he established? 4. What kind of sanctions does his institution impose? 5. What are the connecting links between him, us, and the future? In a church, the answer to the first question is clear, on God's authority. Second, the founder imposed a church hierarchy. Third, the church has boundaries which are theological and legal. Fourth, most churches have membership lists and therefore sanction, excommunication, i.e. cutting off a deviant member from access to the Lord's Supper. Churches with open communion and no membership roles adopt other, less visible, and less clear forms of sanctions, but there are always positive and negative sanctions in any organization. Finally, the question of membership. The link between the founder and today's church member may be confessional, in creedal churches, emotional, liturgical, or legal membership, or any mixture thereof. In the case of immigrant churches, it may be linguistic or racial. Nations have an analogous set of questions. First, In whose name did the founder act? His own, the charismatic leader. His family's, patriarchal traditional. The party's, ideological. God's, theological. 
Nature's rational. Someone had to authorize it. There had to be an author. Second, what is the nature of the national organization's hierarchy? What is the basis of obedience to this hierarchy? Personal allegiance, military patriarchal, theocratic investiture, theocracy, public investiture, democracy, the leader's office, bureaucracy. Third, what are the boundaries of political authority? Boundaries are both geographical and legal. In other words, what are the limits of political authority? Fourth, what are the positive and negative sanctions of government? Are they essentially negative, limited government, positive, welfare state, a mixture? The basic question is this, in what ways do leaders encourage self-government, since the consent of the governed is always necessary? Finally, there is the question of succession or continuity. This is the question of rulership and citizenship. What is the legal basis of transition, ruler to ruler, citizen to citizen, birth, legal adoption, election, naturalization? People are born and they die. They move. They change allegiances. Societies and civil governments must deal with these facts of life and death. To do so, they create judicially binding public events, events that are best understood as acts of covenant renewal. An election is an act of covenant renewal, so is swearing in an oath of office especially swearing an oath of office, for the oath explicitly or implicitly calls down the negative sanctions of the covenant should the swearer break the legal terms of the covenant. Covenantalism, an inescapable concept. This book deals primarily with the political and judicial implications of point four of the biblical covenant model, oaths sanctions. This is not to say that none of the other points is involved. A covenant is presented to men as a unit and is either accepted or rejected as a unit. When we deal with any of God's covenant institutions, we must consider all five aspects of the biblical covenant model. Following Ray Sutton's model, I divide up the covenant into these five points. Transcendence, sovereignty, yet imminence, presence. 2. Hierarchy, authority, representation. 3. Ethics, law, dominion. 4. Oath, judgments, sanctions, blessings, curses. 5. Succession, continuity, inheritance. The acronym is Theos, the Greek word for God. All three of the authorized corporate covenant institutions, church, government, family government, and civil government, must bear the institutional marks of these five points. There is no escape. All five are basic to each of the covenant institutions. The covenant may identify a God different from the God of the Bible, but the covenant structure itself is inescapable. There can be no government apart from this structure. The covenant is an inescapable concept. It is never a question of covenant versus no covenant. It is always a question of which covenant. More to the point, it is a question of which sovereign master. Because Western Protestantism, ever since the late 17th century, has cooperated with the forces of rationalism in abandoning the original covenantal foundations of Western civilization, we still face a 300-year-old dilemma. It is most acute in the United States, where vestiges of the older covenantal Christianity still remain, and where the conflict between covenant breakers and covenant keepers has visibly escalated since about 1975. American church historian Sidney Mead stated the nature of the intellectual problem, which has now begun to assert itself as a cultural and political problem, an ancient one in American history. Writing in 1953, he observed, quote, But the great item of unfinished intellectual business confronting the Protestant denominations was and is the problem of religious freedom. And here the situation is almost as desperate as increasingly it becomes clear that the problem cannot be solved simply by maligning the character of those who question the American practice. 
It is not passing strange that American Protestantism has never developed any sound theoretical justification of or theological orientation for its most distinctive practice. Today, we should probably have to agree with the writer of 1876 who said that we seem to have made no advance whatever in harmonizing, on a theoretical level, the relations of religious sects among themselves or in defining their common relation to the civil power. End of quote. I ask this question. To what extent is the U.S. Constitution a covenantal document? If I can show that it is a covenantal document, then a second question arises, what kind of covenant, Christian or secular, humanist? To answer those two questions, I shall, I shall present a considerable quality of historical material, much of it unfamiliar even to professional historians unless they are specialists in colonial American history and 18th century religious, religious controversies. I was trained professionally in the former field, yet what I discuss in this section was never mentioned in any graduate seminar I ever took or any book I ever read in the 1960s. The source materials, both primary and secondary, did exist, but they had been long forgotten. I argue that the Constitution's framers were not the nation's founding fathers. Though I do not develop the theme extensively, it is my view that Governor John Winthrop of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, rather than George Washington, deserves the, deserves the title of founding father. So, however, however, does Roger Williams, for because of Williams, George Washington and the framers became politically possible. I argue that the Constitution, like the Charter of Colonial Rhode Island, is a substitute covenant. This is not the standard textbook account of the Constitution, or standard anything account, but it is a true account, assuming that the Bible is true. I assume that it is. Warren Burger, the former Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, has offered his opinion that the United States, as a true nation, was conceived in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, but it was not yet born until the document was ratified. This sentence summarizes what I call the myth of the Constitution as a sole covenantal basis of the nation we call the United States of America. I contend that this myth is the legacy of a humanist conspiracy. The Declaration of Independence of the United States against Great Britain in 1776 was a formal declaration of political independence. It was the first step in a more important declaration of independence, a covenantal declaration of independence from the God of the Bible. The latter declaration is the document we know as the United States Constitution. To prove my point, I have written this book. I focus on the crucial but much neglected section of the Constitution, the one prohibiting religious test oaths. Quote, the senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of the several state legislatures and all the executives and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution, but no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. This seemingly innocuous provision was and is far more important than the First Amendment in establishing the religious character of the American nation. Yet it is seldom discussed, even by specialists in constitutional theory. The quiet revolution which this provision had produced is still equally quiet two centuries after the revolution began. As Garrett Garrett said, speaking of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal of the 1930s and early 1940s, quote, the revolution was, end quote. Historiography. There is no neutrality. One's presuppositions about the nature of God, man, law, causation, and time shape one's interpretation of all facts. There is no brute factuality, as Cornelius Van Til insisted. There is only interpreted factuality. The history of the origins of the U.S. Constitution is the 20th in the 20th century was a debate between the Whig view 
the Constitution as an instrument written by men who sought to increase human liberty, and the economic Marxist Beardian view, a document a document written by a particular economic class of men who were seeking economic advantage. There was also a modified Tory view, represented by the imperial histories written by men like Charles M. Andrews and Lawrence H. Gibson, who argued that things really were not so bad, and that the disputes could have been worked out between the colonies and Great Britain within the framework of the imperial system. The Whig view has predominated. This view goes back to the very era of the Constitution itself, to South Carolinian David Ramsey. There have been wide variations within this tradition, reflecting the divisions within the Constitutional Convention. Big government, Hamiltonian Federalist, limited government, Jeffersonian Republican, and states' rights. To put it bluntly, the winners write the history textbooks, and even the losers, for example, Alexander H. Stevens, A Constitutional View of the Late War Between the States, wind up siding with one another or party within the camp of the winners. This study of the Constitution is an exception to the rule. I am writing from the perspective of the real losers, the ones whose case is virtually never even considered, let alone defended. I am arguing the case from the point of view of the founders of America, the Christians. It was they who steadily lost the battle, beginning with the restoration of Charles II to the throne in 1660. It took over a century for this defeat to be consummated by the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. They had basically lost the war by 1684, marked by the revocation of the Massachusetts Charter under Charles II, who died in 1685. After the glorious revolution against James II, a Whig revolution of 1688-89, Massachusetts was granted a new royal charter, 1691, but one which was no longer Puritan in origin. Voting henceforth was regulated strictly in terms of property ownership, not religion. Covenantally speaking, the lawyers and the merchants inherited the Puritan commonwealth. The Rhode Island Experiment Theologically, and even covenantally, this was not the beginning of the battle. This was the beginning of the end. The first skirmish in the struggle to create the modern world was in the winter of 1636, when Roger Williams fled Massachusetts and headed into the wilderness of what was to become Rhode Island. Williams successfully created a new colony, but it was far more than a new colony. It was a new concept of civil government. It was a concept that has become dominant today, the distinguishing mark of political modernism. He founded a colony that was openly secular. There would be no church-state connection or even a religion-state connection. In 1642, the General Court of Rhode Island organized a new government. It required an oath of office from magistrates to, quote, walk faithfully and taken, quote, in the presence of God. There was no other mention of religion. The colony's civil government was formally recognized as, quote, a democracy or popular government, end quote. In March of 1644, or old calendar, 1643, Parliament granted a charter to the Providence Plantations. In response, in 1647, acts and orders were agreed upon. The colony was again identified as, quote, democratical, meaning, quote, a government held by the free and voluntary consent of all, or the greater part of the free inhabitants, end quote. This supplemental document admitted the existence of, quote, our different consciences touching the truth as it is in Jesus, end quote, and affirmed, quote, each man's peaceable and quiet enjoyment of his lawful right and liberty, end quote. It enacted civil laws and sanctions for various crimes, including murder, rebellion, misbehavior, witchcraft, adultery, fornication, perjury, kidnapping, whoremongering, etc. It did not, as it had been done in Massachusetts, identify these crimes as crimes listed in the Old Testament with passages cited, as in Massachusetts Body of Liberty, 1641. Instead, it made this statement, quote, These are the laws that concern all men, and these are the penalties for transgression thereof 
which by common assent and ratified and established throughout the whole colony and otherwise than thus what is herein forbidden all men may walk as their consciences persuade them every one in the name of his god and let the saints of the most high walk in this colony without molestation in the name of jehovah their god forever and ever etc etc end quote this meant however that non-saints had the same civil powers and immunities that they too could walk in the colony without molestation and more to the point covenantally vote in all colonial elections quote, everyone in the name of his God, end quote, or lack thereof. In 1663, Charles II, as a self-identified Christian monarch, granted to them in the name of the, quote, true Christian faith, a special dispensation. They would not have to worship God according to the Church of England, quote, or take or subscribe the oaths and articles made and established in that behalf, end quote. The Charter then adopted the language that was to be repeated again and again in the next hundred years of Charter granting and constitution making. Quote, no person within the said colony at any time hereafter shall be anywise molested, punished, disquieted, or called into question for any differences in opinion in matters of religion and do not actually disturb the civil peace of our said colony. End quote. This he called a, quote, hopeful undertakenage. The charter mentioned the, quote, good providence of God from whom the plantations have taken their name. But that was a mere formality. The heart of the experiment was judicial. What is remarkable in retrospect and what has become standard fare in making the case for modern Christian pluralism was the king's express hope that by severing the colony's civil government from religion, the settlers, quote, may be in the better captaincy to defend themselves in their just rights and liberties against all enemies of the Christian faith and all others in all respects, end of quote. A formal transfer of civil sovereignty. Finally, this book argues that a new view of civil sovereignty was implied by the Rhode Island theology. The new view transferred civil sovereignty from God to the people, considered as an autonomous agent. That is, this view of sovereignty moved from theonomy to autonomy, paralleling the shift of the civil government from God as finally sovereign in history to man as finally sovereign in history. The clearest statement of this shift came in 1790, two years after the ratification of the Constitution. It was written by James Wilson of Pennsylvania, who had been one of the major participants at the convention and also in the state legislature in Pennsylvania in the fall of 1787. He was a member of the Nationalist Faction, holding a view of centralized political power that was closer to Hamilton's view than Jefferson's. He was also a strong supporter of the Bank of North America, which had been authorized by Continental Congress. Quote, we are told, however, that at last the source of the Nile has been discovered, and that it consists of what might have been supposed before the discovery, a collection of springs, small indeed but pure. The fate of sovereignty has been similar to that of the Nile, always magnificent, always interesting to mankind, it has become alternately their blessing and their curse. Its origin has often been attempted to be traced. The great and the wise have embarked in the undertaking, though seldom it must be owned with the spirit of just inquiry or in the direction which leads to important discovery. The source of sovereignty was still concealed beyond some impenetrable mystery, and because it was concealed, philosophers and politicians, in this instance gravely taught, one and the other the poets had fondly fabled, that it must be something more than human, it was impiously asserted to be divine. Lately, the inquiry has been recommended with a different spirit and in a new direction, and although the discovery of nothing very astonishing, yet the discovery of something very useful and true has been the result. The dread and redoubtable sovereign, when traced to his ultimate and genuine source, 
has been found as he ought to have been found in the free and independent man. End of quote. Here is the underlying story of the U.S. Constitution, the formal transfer of covenantal civil sovereignty from the God of the Bible in 12 of the 13 states to we the people of the Constitution. Conclusion It is my contention, argued, many will say, contentiously, that the experiment in political pluralism in the Rhode Island wilderness set the standard for all modern political developments. It was the first civil order in the West to break with the concept of Trinitarian civil covenantalism. This tiny colony, established self-consciously as an alternative to the theocracy of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, was the birthplace of modern political pluralism. More than this, I contend that the major arguments in defense of Christian political pluralism invariably sound like those used by Williams to justify his opposition to and departure from Massachusetts. The political history of the United States after 1688 has essentially been the extension of Roger Williams' view of civil government, as opposed to John Winthrop's. The defenders of democracy have not often quoted either man, but they have quoted Williams more often. Williams and his colleagues laid the covenantal foundations for modern democracy, but they have not been given sufficient credit for their pioneering effort. Modern defenders of democracy prefer to avoid naming Jesus in their defenses of political pluralism. They are therefore more consistent in their understanding of the theology of pluralism. It is mainly Christian defenders of political pluralism who are drawn to Williams these days. But if Rhode Island was not the explicit political theological representative model in 18th century colonial America, what was? We must begin, therefore, with the question, what were the religious and intellectual roots of the U.S. Constitution? Quote, Henry Steele Commager, 1977. It is only against the background of the old world enlightenment that we can appreciate the political achievements of the men who were to be immortalized as founding fathers of the new republic, their resourcefulness, their ingenuity, their wisdom, their sagacity, their virtue. Where most of the philosophers of the old world were recruited from naturalists and doctors and ecclesiastics, oh, how the abbes disported themselves in the page of the encyclopedia. In America, most of them were students of the law. Law was the common denominator of Jefferson and Madison, of George Mason, who wrote Virginia's famous Bill of Rights, and George Wythe, who presided over her highest court, of Alexander Hamilton, and of John Jay, of John Adams, who was the chief justice of his state, he never took office to be sure, and Roger Sherman and Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut, and the American Blackstone, James Wilson and his fellow commentator on the Constitution, Nathaniel Chipman of Vermont, and the two brilliant Pickneys of South Carolina, and even of the educator and Lexi choreographer, Noah Webster, and even those who are not trained to the law, like Franklin, Dr. Rush, and Tom Paine, who are more than lawyers, they were political philosophers. It was the lawyers who had written the Declaration of Independence and the Northwest Ordinance, and it was mostly lawyers who drafted the Constitution of the States and of the new United States who drafted the Constitution. For 40 years, every president of the new nation, with the exception of Washington himself, and every vice president and secretary of state, without exception, was a lawyer. In America, politics was the universal preoccupation, legislation the universal resource, and the Constitution the universal panacea. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles 
will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.